Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, Professor of History at Brookdale Community College. Today we'll be discussing a new book by Dr. Holly A. Baggett, titled Making No Compromise, Margaret Anderson, Jane Heap, and The Little Review, published by Northern Illinois University Press, an imprint of Cornell University Press. Dr. Baggett is a professor emeritus of history at Missouri State University and the editor of another book, Dear Tiny Heart, The Letters of Jane Heap and Florence Reynolds. Holly, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jane. I appreciate it. I was wondering if you would start us off by telling us how you came to these women, how you came to this subject for your book. Well, um, I was finishing up my doctorate in my uh, American history with my specialization being women in American history. And um, I, I wrote my dissertation on the little review through the lens of women's history and history of sexuality. But I felt really that it was really only half the story. And I spent the next 25 years trying to do the rest of the half of the story. Um, because uh, Jane Heap, I felt, was a fascinating figure who was difficult to um, find any materials for. Uh, Margaret Anderson wrote three autobiographies. Her papers are in the Library of Congress, uh, Harry Ransom in Texas, all over the place. But Jane Heap, and she really, she when she agreed to write for the little review. She just used the under lowercase initials, J-H, you know, like Katie Lang did decades after. So it was the point was to be, to keep her head low. Um, and also the fact that in the 20s, uh, right when they were having some of their greatest successes in publishing modernist authors, um, they became enamored of an Armenian uh, guru uh, mystic by the name of George uh, Gurdjieff, uh, as a number of uh, artists did in that time. And um, I really wanted to understand that uh, because this man had a very, a reputation as uh, like a lot of gurus impregnating their female students, you know, drinking and eating himself to death, that type of thing. Um, but what we can talk more about him later. But I, I basically it was Jane Heap and the Gurdjieff influence. Why did they take that uh, turn that I spent the rest of my time working on? It's interesting because I, after I read your book, then I went to my bookshelf and started looking through my uh, Lillian Fatterman and Lila Rupp books that all deal with trying to tell the story of early 20th century lesbian relationships and culture. And I couldn't find Jane Heap in any of them. Yeah. And I realized that these, that this book is so important because you're really restoring these women to the narrative and they've been very overlooked, even by women who write about lesbian culture at this time. So I, I was really fascinated with that because I hadn't heard of them before. And of course, you know, it wasn't part of my education. Right. Uh, so it's great to to see, like, the, the publication of this book was really very interesting. So can you talk a little bit about Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap and their relationship? 
and who they were. Yeah. Yeah, who they were, they, were they? They were two women from the American Midwest. Anderson was born in Indiana. He'd been Kansas. Uh, they both make their way to uh, Chicago. Um, Anderson to write book reviews for various little journals and Heap to study at the Art Institute of Chicago. She was an artist. She was a talented artist. Um, and it was Anderson's decision before they met uh, to start the Little Review. Around that time, you're you're starting to have what are called little literary renaissances, like a, the Chicago literary renaissance, the New York literary renaissance, uh, where you're just on the cusp of writers just you know, learning to throw away the past, Victorian authors, their antiquated concerns. And you see this, this new movement, modernism uh, in art and music and, and literature. Uh, they met, someone introduced them in the office of the Little Review office, which was uh, 1914. And it was in the Little Review, uh, I'm sorry, sorry, the Fine Arts Building in Chicago. Um and they were introduced, and Anderson was just immediately flabbergasted and thought Jane Heat was the most wonderful thing ever. You know, they were very different personalities. Uh, Anderson was very bubbly and enthusiastic and, you know, always catching her breath and stuff like that. And Heat was, uh, I argue, I think maybe clinically depressed. Um, she, she was a noted wit. People, everybody around her knew her wit uh, and how she would just say these things right on target. Um, but it wasn't uh, so he came to Chicago to be an artist. Anderson came to do, do these little jobs, decided that the revolution in the arts wasn't going fast enough. The only thing to do was start her own literary radical magazine, and she called it the Little Review. Uh, and it was it would go on to have incredible importance in, in publishing the people who would later be known as the giants of modernism, as well as discovering and publishing a lot of women uh, writers who only got rediscovered in the 70s when you have all of that changing in and in, uh, in the field. Um, so. So they were um, writers. It's interesting because they they're writers and they're going to publish their own writing. Right, right. And they're also going to promote other people's writing. Right. And uh, I mean, Anderson wrote many uh, vigorous editorials. You can almost hear her gasping from the page. And one of those was what's considered the first editorial by a lesbian for gay rights, which she wrote in 1915. Um which was pretty incredible. And you don't, you, you really have to go dig in the weeds to find that in places, you know? Um, so one of the reasons I think that, you know, they're lost in the story and people don't know them uh, is because there was narratives, historical narratives written afterwards about these major modernists like Ezra Pound, who was their foreign editor from London for a while. Uh, they published early T.S. Eliot. They published early Hemingway. And, uh, of course, James Joyce was uh, Ulysses, which they became particularly famous for. And when you read accounts, say, of the Ulysses trial, I'll just go ahead and talk about that. Um, Ezra Pound was taking chapters from Joyce's Ulysses, sending them to New York and saying, serialize this. And they, they did. They got it right away. They knew exactly what was going on in there. Jane Heap wrote to Joyce uh, herself and said, I'm really going to be sad when Mr. Bloom finishes his day, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, 
and and they are painted in these books books going up to like 2000s uh starting say from the 50s or 60s where people writing about pound writing about uh ulysses and they are portrayed if they're mentioned as these little busybodies who were way in over their head and didn't have any idea what they were doing and poor pound and poor joyce when in fact joyce loved what was happening because the 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 um series that they published uh, was uh, uh, the post office took them and burned them. And um, they had that happen several times. Uh, they were determined to keep publishing it, even after Pound thought this is not good, but Joyce was right there behind them. And so, you know, it's these male giants of, of modernism, what they call the men of four, 1914, you know, uh, and it's their story. No, I mean, those women got that... <laughs> book its first major attention and of course it's not till two decades later that it's allowed to come in as a book to the united states um they had really good taste they did. They, they, they did they are recognizing the great talent of all these writers and providing a publication to get their work out there Right. And and not only the men who, as I said before, who were going to be, you know, the big guys, but all these women who were around and writing at the time, who, as I said, nobody hears of them until maybe the 70s, if you're lucky. Right. Uh, and they no. had to be sort of re, it had to be like in a process of rediscovery. Right. Right. Because they weren't taken seriously for, at first. But, right. but, but Anderson and Heap... Uh, had, did have a real eye for talent. I mean, most people at that time, they were reading the Ulysses chapters in the Little Review. They, they're they writing and complaining, what in the world is going on? This is a crazed, disordered man. And, you know, but no, they got it. I love that you call them intellectual dissenters on a sacred mission. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, I think uh, sums up the 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 gravity that they they felt they were the importance of what they were doing, and so they really have uh, the the um, the fervor of experimentation and free thinking, and it really fits into this entire era and culture that they were immersed in in Bohemian culture and radicalism. Right, and they were in the vanguard of that. It wasn't like they were riding a wave; it was like they were right in front. Right. And so how come they're so overlooked, do you think? I mean, that's so frustrating. Uh, it is, to me. yeah. I think I think they've been overlooked because there wasn't much of a interest in rewriting uh, the, the standard historical narrative about these men still remain the giants. Um, and as I, you know, I think I point out in a footnote there, I mean, just recently somebody characterized the whole, they were ungrateful to their lawyer who was, you know, it was like, who had the most disastrous legal strategy at all. He said, Joyce's, uh, wrote the way he did because he had poor eyesight. <laughs> he couldn't see well. That's why his sentences were all jumbled up. I mean, <laughs> and this is a man who considered himself, you know, uh, what we call today an influencer or, or something, you know, he was a John Quinn, their lawyer was a big uh, uh, proponent of Irish writers, but. Uh, and, but he and, turned around to them and said, just keep your mouth shut, right? Exactly, exactly. And Anderson said she wanted to jump up and yell and he said, sit down, you're playing into their game. So, um, yeah, I mean, different 
strategies they had for fighting. And in that instance, it was uh, Anderson followed Heap and said, we're just not going to, you know, buy into this, what you're doing here. So the uh, the little review, would you consider like a, talk a little bit about like how did a lot of people read it? It was it at part, you know, where did it stand in terms of the other literary magazines that were also being published at that time? Can you give us like a little bit of a scale? Yeah, because there were a ton of little magazines uh, published during that time. And now there's like a whole new field of English called periodical studies about using the uh, journals as primary documents themselves. I mean, even to looking at what they're who they're choosing for advertisers and, and things like that. Uh, so that's a fairly uh, recent, recent field. Um, but I'm sorry, your original question was, why I are they just thinking, look? you know, for when we think about the little review. Oh, okay. Was, yeah. You know, where did it stand sort of among the other magazines and, and literary magazines of the time? Um, they had a small subscription list. I think at its height, it was 4,000 of people who actually subscribed and they sold it on newsstands in major cities. But its influence was not proportionate to its small size. Uh, somebody made an observation about it, the little review being like, um, oh, who's the uh, guy, uh, Lou, the punk rocker? And his famous album, Lou Reed and Walk on the Wild Side, it's like, or not Walk on the Wild Side, but that one album he did that was everybody paid attention to. Velvet uh, um, Underground, right? Right. They all didn't become members of the Velvet Underground after they heard that record, but they, they went and joined a band. You know? <laughs> they had that record influenced them way beyond uh, what it did other people. So... Uh, it was small in, in subscriptions and circulation, but because they were always getting themselves into trouble, they were in the news themselves. So that started in Chicago where she, uh, Anderson ran out of money and, and she and her little gang slept on the beach in Lake Michigan for, you know, they were in the, the newspaper for that as a Nietzschean stronghold, <laughs> you know. Um, These women sound like they were a lot of fun. Yeah, they do sound like they're a lot of fun, and they had friends who were a lot of fun, and, uh, you know, I would have loved to be a, a fly on the wall anywhere. To be <laughs> anywhere. part of this, yeah, to be in this, in this culture, in this right. social group, and in this period of radicalism and political right. influence, too, right? Right. And right. so why did you name the book Making No Compromise? Actually, that wasn't the original title. <laughs> the original title was The Buzz and the Sting, Margaret Anderson, Jane Heap, and a Little Review, because Jane Heap once characterized them as a couple, that Anderson was the buzz and Heap was the sting who came in for the kill <laughs> in these highfalutin conversations they had. Uh, so it was uh, the press suggested making no compromise. I wish I had because it really makes sense. It's, it's their lack of even having the remotest feeling that they should compromise on anything with anyone. I mean, they were right and they knew it. And, uh, you know, it's a perfect title if I say so myself. Thank you for the, right. yeah, I think too, you know, the idea of having artistic standards and not yeah. being influenced and, and pressured into becoming mediocre. Right. 
that's the worst thing for an artist. Right, right. They weren't cowed by everybody who told them they needed to sit down and shut up and go get married and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's really great, too, how you place this all in the history of, uh, in lesbian history. Yeah. And how the historical, the historiography on lesbian life has really developed so much over the last 30 years. And can you kind of place that a little bit, talk a little bit about the going from Boston marriages and romantic friendship and where this, uh, how they fit into sort of their context of their historical period? Yeah, um, they wouldn't be mistaken for a Boston marriage for anybody uh, who was around them. Uh, they presented very differently. Uh, he pre presented as a very feminine, uh, Anderson was very feminine and he very uh, masculine. And in fact, she was a cross-dresser. And uh, we have pictures of her cross-dressing with other women who belonged to a little theater group together. Um, and it was in what's going also going on in Chicago at this time, as in other major cities, there are neighborhoods that are coalescing. And Chicago was an area called Tower, Tower Town in the north part of Chicago, uh, which was both working class and historians of sexuality tell us that we working class people seem to be more upfront and open and progressive in their views of sexuality uh, that later impacted more staid middle class people. Uh, and and that there were uh, gay bars, literally, uh, in this neighborhood in um, Chicago. Um, and so at this point, you, you have many physicians who call themselves sexologists, like Havelock Ellis, who are publishing about the intermediate types, uh, inversion, etc. And actually, his wife, Edith Ellis, uh, who Anderson knew because she came to Chicago to give a speech, um, was a lesbian, and he was asking her questions for his study of lesbians. So, uh, anyway, so um, at this point, uh, the way she writes, and it's a whole other thing you have to deal with, is women's autobiography and what they choose to put in and what they choose to leave out. And Anderson says, like in the first two pages of her first autobiography, in the best one, my thirty year thirty years war, I'm I, I'm I'll never be a mother. I'll never be a mistress. I'll never, ever, ever be a man's wife. And then a couple of chapters later where she's met Jane Heap. I mean, this is a person who's fallen in love. And she disguised the first time they had together when they left Chicago, they took the little review on the road in San Francisco and they spent a few months uh, in a house in Mill Valley um, that they broke into first, only to find out it was owned by the sheriff. Uh, <laughs> and then when Emma Goldman came to town and they were great supporters of Emma Goldman she was visiting and he got oh alert alert the famous anarchist is in your area and he said I know she's at my house <laughs> so, <laughs> so I mean that's another thing about their story there's an awful lot of humor in it uh, you know Anderson had a great sense of humor he had a bit of a dark sense of humor um, but um well, once again, I forget the original question. That's but. right. Yeah. So we're, but then they part. They part ways, and they end up in relationships with other, other right. women. Right. Right. Uh, there's uh, tension. Uh, you can see in Jane Heap's letters uh, 
which I discovered when I was about almost done with my dissertation. And I tried to get what I could in there at that point. But um, when I found her letters, that's the whole reason why I wanted to go on a, you know, do another book because it opened up the whole world of Jane Heap. Um, so she had a very dark sense of humor. Um, you know, I think, let me just uh, talk about Jane Heap for a moment and about how we really didn't know anything about her and she tried to keep her head low. Um, and I wrote to a woman who had written a very uh, good article, an art historian about Heap and how their later interest in Gurdjieff uh, played out in terms of her views of art. Um, and I wrote to this one historian, I said, do you know, were there are any Jane Heap papers anywhere? And she said, no. She said, welcome to the small group of scholars who have scoured every corner of the earth to, to find Jane Heap papers. And so the next thing I did was, we know that she was she grew up in Topeka. Her father worked at the insane asylum next to the house where she grew up. Uh, and I knew he worked there. And that, that, that place, it used to be the Topeka Hospital for the Insane, had its records uh, still in a place in Topeka. And I, I wrote the librarian there saying, I'm looking for uh, employment records of George Heap. And uh, she sent me the records and she said, by the way, there was somebody here from California uh, who said she was writing a biography of Jane Heap. Here's her name and address. And I looked at, I didn't recognize her as a scholar or you know, anyone in the field. Uh, and her address was Hollywood, California. <laughs> So I wrote her a letter saying I'm writing, uh, you know, a dissertation. I'm hoping for a second book. Um, do you, what's your interest? How do you know about her? She wrote me right back. She was an elderly woman who, as a young woman, read uh, my Thirty Years' War, Anderson's first autobiography. She was a lesbian. She recognized she's reading a book by a lesbian. Um, and one day she was talking with a friend of hers of her interest in Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap in the Little Review. And this friend said, oh, my, my uh, aunt uh, was this woman, Florence Reynolds, and that she was great friends with Jane Heap. And I've got all these letters, and I didn't know what to do with them. And so she gave them to Jane Purse, who said, I'm going to write this book. But one thing, it didn't, you know, didn't turn out, and she passed away. Um, and amazingly, the University of Delaware, where I was writing my dissertation, uh, has a special collection of literature and modernism in their special collections. And they bought those letters uh, from Jane wow. Pierce before she died, because, you know, she was, I'm very happy for that. And that's, now it's known as the Florence Reynolds Jane Heap Collection. And I, when I've been looking at various books of tangential people and this and that, and I've I've noticed this, those those letters have been used a lot now. And and I edited them down to a book at NYU did twenty four years ago uh, called Dear Tiny Heart. But uh, you know that's one of those stories you just <laughs> that <laughs> is just that is fantastic. What a coincidence. Yeah, and it turned out this woman, Jane Pierce in Hollywood, California, spent her dumb, her summers uh, in Delaware because she had family there. And so every summer, she and she's that's one of the reasons she answered my letter, because it was from Delaware. Yeah, yeah. Wow, what what a coincidence that that, they, that, that happened. That's amazing. Yeah, just incredible. And, you know, I think that people were such avid letter writers. Right. Sometimes how many... Uh, 
piles of personal letters are sitting in attics unrecognized uh, that yeah, scholars well, they, would love to be able to examine and incorporate and 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 use in in scholarship but what a find that's really fascinating yeah um so uh, Jane Purse was actually a dog groomer in Hollywood, and all these letters were in the back room of the dog grooming place. <laughs> so, um, so she never did. She never ended up writing the biography that she told no. the librarian she was working on. She just, right. yeah, yeah, and she just had this. And she, thank goodness, no one ever threw them away or anything right. like that. And it's not only that, you know. When I got these letters in my hands, I was just. Anderson, thank God, there were a lot of Anderson letters in there later. She typed a lot of her later letters. Uh, he wrote everything. and But it was, you know, you could read the handwriting. And I'm just thinking how lucky I was at that particular point in history as letters are vanishing as a means of communication and what we're losing and getting a world of what screenshots of text messages. I mean, it's a major, major loss. It is. And, you know, you really, as historians, we really have to wonder what's going to happen to storytelling. Right. Without that. Right. And even without the ability to, you know, people today that don't use script can't yeah. read script. Right. Yeah. Even deal, even working with old documents, it's almost it's becoming almost like a lost language. Yeah. It's really fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about the spiritual part of your analysis. And so I think of this book has, this book has so many different interesting angles to it. And the one thing that you already mentioned a little bit about was George uh, Gurdjieff. So could you talk a little bit about how they came to know about him and what they're what they were uh, so captivated by him can you talk a little bit about that well he was uh Gurdjieff was a um, Armenian who started getting followers including the philosopher and mathematician P.D. Ospensky in Russia during the revolution and his little gang of followers got out of Russia and then went all around and um ended up in France in the 20s and uh, he began um, attracting notice of intellectuals, artists. Um, there was a man who wrote for a uh, journal, A.R.R. Rage, who was a literary critic that Anderson Heat knew. He becomes a first right-hand man to this, uh, to Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff's cosmology, and it's very dense and very complicated. He said he wrote so that people would have to read it three times before they understand. <laughs> and I, I give some examples of his syntax and uh, in there. Um, but he wasn't he he wasn't a mystic in the sense that he believed in uh, the emotionality of of, of having a, a divine experience or anything like that. It was very cut and dried uh, in terms of people. People are just sleeping, walking, sleeping machines. They don't know who they really are. Uh, the traditional ways of finding uh, your own reality, the, the, the monk, the yogi, the faker, uh, those three ways don't work. Uh, he called his way the fourth way. 
The idea was become aware of your character flaws. He liked to, as he said, step on people's corns because that's only how they wake up to the, the reality of their own uh, lies they tell themselves. Um, he he taught through dancing and music. Um, and I've heard his music and I can see why Anderson was very passionate about music and she played the piano, was passionate about the piano. And I could tell she would be attracted to this type of of quiet folk music on the piano. Um, and so he comes to America with his little group, comes to New York in 1924. And because uh, R.H., who had written some pieces for the Little Review, he contacted Anderson and he said, I'm coming and uh, Gurdjieff is following. And so they first heard a, a speech by Orage, which made sense and they thought was very revealing. And then Gurdjieff arrived and they were, well, Anderson, we have uh, her account of this, immediately just transported. He he was an intense looking man. He was bald. He had a dark mustache. There's a picture of him in the book. And she said the magnetism about him was just incredible, which is, you know, what people often say when they meet somebody, uh, you know, there's that first sense. And then uh, they began uh, in, in student groups, uh, reading his writings, uh, trying to understand them. And then they decide to go to Paris for the first time in 1924. And they go uh, to his place outside uh, Paris and stay and study there for a while. And he actually became uh, a very respected teacher of his ideas. Uh, he took when they were in Paris. He told her to go to London and start a Gurdjieff group there, which she did. Um, and from the '30s till her death in '64, uh, anybody knew anything about Gurdjieff in London uh, knew about Jane Heap. Um, so um, it's sort of a second career for her. Yes, it was. And she she said she turned her back on art, that art, no letter. They stopped the little review in 1929. By then, they had been students of Gurdjieff for five years. And they both said in their farewell editorials, you know, art just doesn't hack it anymore for our understanding about human beings. Um, but, and, and Anderson said the same thing. Then she writes two more books, basically talking about all the books and paintings and music she loves after she's been with Gurdjieff. So I guess you could take it with a grain of salt in some aspects, uh, but they felt it was it was time for them to get serious and uh, being students of Gurdjieff was the thing to do. Now with Gurdjieff, unlike other type of situations like this, you could go study at his place but you could just have your regular old life. You didn't live there. You didn't follow the orders, you know, et cetera, which I think is what appealed to a lot of artists. Uh, you know, they would take his writings and study them and study them with each other. And today there's still Gurdjieff groups all over the world. Uh, I've been to a number of them. I've, I've interviewed the uh, people who were students of Heap in London uh, around the second world war. Um, and, um, you know, I, she, she still ends up, Jane Heap, a mysterious figure at the end. But the letters I had were from 1908 to 1949 when Florence Reynolds died. So that's a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah. Um, and um, that's really a, a, a really important part of her life, right? That's where she's right. very productive. She's doing a lot of different things. Right. And I had a, when I got right out of graduate school, I had a one year job at the University of Oregon. And right outside of uh, Portland was uh, a commune. 
uh, Gurdjieff Commune, a major one that was run by a woman who was her Jane Heap student in England during World War II. Um, and so I, it was it was an incredible thing to watch. They had a big lunch and the people come and they have talks and this and that. And it was a beautiful farm. And then I've sat in on meetings in suburban New Jersey and uh, Utah, and I've been to London and, uh, you know, interviewed people. And uh, I still don't understand it. I still do not see what is the real catch. Uh, one thing I have noticed, uh, then and now, his followers are overwhelmingly highly educated professionals. Uh, a number of physicians have followed him. Uh, so, um, so there's something there that speaks to them, and I just, I just think that Anderson and Heap, they were always looking for answers. That's why they were artists to begin with, you know. Yeah, that's what that's I got from your book was that Gurdjieff was encouraging people to ha look within, and that for the artist, that can be a very inspirational. Yeah. Thing. to to create something new is to understand or to recreate yourself or rediscover who you are and to dig into some of those things it's interesting some sort of the even the uh have you know freud is also kind of in the psychology okay. field doing some of that kind of thinking or yeah. introspection too so it's uh i mean it made sense to me that somebody who you know these women who were looking for a new modern creative world uh, output yeah that he would be somebody that they found interesting yeah yeah but they you know, really go whole hog in right i mean yeah Jane he but you know she dedicates she kind of really becomes right. a right an adherent right and uh you know um, I forget what I was going to say. It's really amazing that his his philosophy is still important and right know, to many people, people right. And uh, you're expected to uh, tie ten percent of your um, uh, income to it, and like a, a whole bunch of other places, they have schisms of oh, you're not the real follower, we're the real followers, you know. Um, so it's a world that it was fascinating to look in from the outside. I'm not sure I'd want to be in it. Yeah, there's there's a little culty yeah. flavor going on there, isn't there? Yeah. And that was the mystery because these two, two smart, intelligent feminist women in the early part of the century, if you think they'd be the last person, people uh, that would be fooled by anybody, and I'm not saying they, that they were fooled. It's just that my argument is, when you look at the at the little review year after year after year and what they're publishing and what they're saying and da 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 da, it's they're searching. They're searching for the ultimate answer to the ultimate questions. So by the time they meet him, it's not really that surprising that they can take that turn. Uh, it's kind of a natural development in a way, rather than at the time. And historians since have said, oh, when they said anything about Gurdjieff, it was, oh, they had nervous breakdowns or they were crazy people anyway, or, you know, not very respectful of uh, the journey. Uh, so that's how I tried to piece it all together. Yeah. And it's not fair to dismiss somebody like that who's who's genuinely curious. Right. Right. You know, it's it's 
that's uh, that's a little bit. That's like a I don't know. That's not very nice. <laughs> I guess I would say. But it what a what a fascinating you know what a fascinating book. And you know you, I wonder too. Do you think of this as almost a co-biography? Oh yeah, yeah. That's why I was going to call it the buzz and the sting. Um, sure. But um, yeah, I I was reconstruing uh, things on my thinking in Anderson and, and and at last had something to go on with Eve, you know, so absolutely. Oh, wow. That's, it's really, it's really wonderful book. And I, uh, I am endlessly fascinated with these women. I really have to keep, I have to keep digging into them. It really is fantastic. I want to thank Holly A. Baggett for joining me on the show today and for writing this new book, Making No Compromise. Margaret Anderson, Jane Heap, and the Little Review, published by Northern Illinois University Press, an imprint of Cornell University Press. Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semeca. Keep reading. <laughs>